Welcome to Liver Talk, a podcast series that shares personal and professional stories about hepatitis as well as liver-related news. Welcome to another episode of Liver Talk. Before we commence this episode, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land wherever you are listening. We pay our respect to the elders past, present and emerging and to any Indigenous people who are listening to this podcast. In this episode, we consider the impacts of alcohol on the brain and the body for non-dependent alcohol use. We were very lucky to speak with Fiona Martin about her research that she is currently undertaking as a PhD candidate in the Clinical Neuroimaging Laboratory at the National University of Ireland. She also brings with her insights from her background in alcohol and other drug work as an AOD counsellor in Australia. We were also joined by Dr Ema McMahon, who has joined the psychiatry program at the National University of Ireland. She has a medical background and has trained as a GP. Dr McMahon moved into psychiatry in 2012 and has since retrained in the specialist training scheme and is now a clinical tutor. We started this interview by asking Fiona what kind of physical changes alcohol could cause in the brain. Across a range of studies, you would find that there are distributed effects on the brain in association with alcohol use. And when I'm thinking about alcohol use, I'm mostly thinking about non-dependent alcohol use. So a lot of what you might find is that there would be effects on frontal areas of the brain. So areas that would be responsible for things called executive functions. So that would be higher level planning, working memory and emotional regulation and inhibition so processes where you might be able to stop yourself talking about one topic ad nauseum part of that would be because that inhibition isn't there anymore and then when we're thinking about other areas like parietal areas or occipital so at the middle and the back areas of the brain that would be areas that are responsible for sensory information so touch, smell, sight, things like that. And particularly visual areas are at the back and then identifying postures and gestures from other people. But there's a study that I really like where people were given alcohol and then had their brains imaged. So they were given alcohol in one trial and a placebo in another, and they didn't know which it was. It was a direct infusion. And these people weren't considered to be addicted or dependent. They were described as healthy social drinkers. And they were infused with alcohol until they were at the legal limit for intoxication in the US. And after being infused with alcohol to that intoxicated level, it was found that reward areas of their brain were more active when they were intoxicated than when they had the placebo. And those researchers also found that the activation in those reward areas was linked to how much those people enjoyed that feeling of being drunk and how much they wanted more alcohol. So alcohol activated that reward areas, made them feel like they were really enjoying themselves and then also made them feel like they wanted more alcohol. So that's affecting that inhibition again. And then during that study, the researchers also presented the people with different faces, with different emotions. And they found that when they were intoxicated, people weren't able to react in a typical way to fearful faces. So they didn't perceive them as fearful. And part of this study was to look at why we find alcohol rewarding. So they 
thought from these results that possibly one of those rewarding aspects of alcohol was the fact that it relaxes us and we don't perceive fear in our general environment that in the manner that we usually would. Some of the work that I've done, I look at um, brain structure and function, particularly in terms of how we think about the brain as a network. So often the way neuroscience is taught, particularly in undergrad psychology, I found was that there's a localization of functions. So say the hippocampus is memory and that's all it does, or the frontal area is for inhibition and that's all it does, but that's not really true. The brain operates as a network at all times and the hippocampus may be involved in that network of memory, but there's other areas that are supporting that memory. So I use a particular branch of neuroscience called network neuroscience and use a particular branch of maths to investigate that. And I also use a particular method of imaging called diffusion weighted imaging to look at how water moves or diffuses around the brain. And what I can do with that is to create a map of the brain. So I can look at how information travels from one gray area to another along white matter roadways. And I can look and see how there might be diversions in place or if some networks are using alternative routes. So say if somebody with a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, are they using a different network, different route to maybe one of our healthy controls or is alcohol associated with different network, different routing? So I have found that there is a network in the brain that's differently connected for people who consume alcohol. And there's areas in that subnetwork that are involved in those behaviors like memory. So the hippocampus is involved, regulating emotions is involved in that and inhibition. So thinking about those frontal areas like the orbitofrontal cortex and the middle frontal cortex, those are areas that are really important in terms of inhibiting those urges to either continue consuming alcohol when there are negative impacts or maybe to stop ourselves talking when clearly whoever we're talking to has had enough, but we can't. And then also there's areas involved in reward there. So the caudate, thalamus and putamen. So that subnetwork was interesting to me because it, you know, if you look back to that previous study, there's areas involved there that are highlighted when people are drunk. And it suggests that alcohol contributes to processes that increase our likelihood to consume alcohol and find it pleasurable. So in terms of physical changes, that's some of them for people when they are drinking, but then also people who have a history of alcohol use and are not dependent on it. And I think in terms of what does that mean and why does it matter? It means that we are actively engaging in behaviors that will change how we experience the world around us and we're potentially impacting our brain health because we are finding particularly in that study that I did that there are areas that are differently connected so they're different for people who consume alcohol in comparison to people who don't so there's that change that is there and those areas are involved in how we experience and how we enjoy alcohol. I think that's so interesting to looking at, uh, you know, there's so much research about sort of uh, excessive alcohol use and alcohol use independence, but there's just not necessarily that same amount of research and understanding the impact of casual drinking and, you know, social drinking. And I think that is really, really interesting. 
In saying yeah. that, though, you mentioned earlier that you have a background in AOD. Do you think that the information you have now, would that inform that sector or how do you think that could inform that work? Yes, definitely. So when I worked in alcohol and other drugs, there was, um, so I worked in Melbourne and then also regional areas. And that was when ICE was kind of becoming more of a drug of choice. And there was lots of really good information about the biological impacts, particularly in terms of the brain. And that was so useful to talk to people about because you could, you know, you could really break it down together and say like, okay, so when you're using ice, this is what's happening in your brain. And when you stop using it and you're withdrawing, these are the impacts on your brain. And you're feeling like this because of this receptor and this network and the withdrawal will feel like this. And generally it will take this long. So you could really, you could really break it down together and people could understand why they were feeling like they were. And particularly for withdrawal processes, it didn't feel as overwhelming for a lot of people because they could see that there was an end in sight, that it was a biological process. And like you say, there just isn't as much information about alcohol use in terms of the impacts on the brain. So the majority of people I was working with were also engaging in alcohol use. And they weren't considered addicted to it. The, most of the people I worked with were between 12 and 25, and they would have been referred for illicit drug use. But practically everybody was drinking alcohol. But it was so hard to find information about how that might be impacting their brain and about how that might be interacting with other brain impacts, with their other substance use. And if I was still working in that area now it would be so nice to have that information to just have a conversation about it and to give them that information and then they can do with it whatever they want just like any kind of information in a counseling session but to be able to have those conversations i would like to see us developing this this research and maybe running some more studies on larger groups of people so that we can generalize it more and create more public health um, policy statements and education for clinical use. How would you draw from your findings or what implications do you think there would be around mental health, mental health diagnosis? Emer has um, more information in terms of the mental health impact, so I'll pass over to her. So what I can talk about, I suppose, is a more generalized concept of what effect does alcohol have in terms of mental health and overall mental health diagnosis. The clearest factor, and I'm sure from your work and from Fiona's work in addictions, it's alcohol, it's a powerful depressant. And, you know, there's lots of data out there in terms of you can have people who don't have a diagnosis of depression. But while they're drinking, perhaps more heavily, and sometimes because, uh, like Fiona described, there's such disparity between how different people process and react to and respond to alcohol. So it doesn't necessarily have to be at a level of harmful use for it to have these effects. And you, again, you would love for the work that Fiona and her colleagues are doing to maybe help us to understand that better in terms of the genetics as to why one person can have a few drinks and be fine and the next person can have the same amount and have a week of 
the horrors and anxiety and depressive symptoms when they feel, well, what's the problem? I'm not drinking to a harmful level, but it's a harmful level for them. And I suppose that's where the clinical part comes in, that understanding that you're looking at the person as a whole. You're not just looking at this one aspect. It's, it's this in the context of their lives and their stressors, their family background, their um you know, predisposing factors that, that this is just another piece of the jigsaw. And I suppose that's clinical medicine that you're constantly looking, you're constantly trying to stand back and see the bigger picture and how things in, interact. So I suppose to come back to the impact of alcohol on mental health, then, as I said, the, the main impact would be the, its powerful depressant effect. So we know that it decreases the levels, levels of serotonin in the brain and that this has a powerful depressant effect. And again, I have to say when Fiona was speaking there about speaking with her patients or her clients um, rather um, with drug use, it reminds me of the conversation I have with people when I meet them um, and I feel that alcohol is playing a significant role for them in their presentation and trying to get them to understand that they might necessarily be exceeding guidelines or criteria, but that's sort of irrelevant. It's them and their lives that you want them to look at and to focus on. And it's amazing that you can meet somebody, you know, perhaps on call in an A&E situation, middle of the night, very distressed, because as Fiona says, alcohol has a powerful effect on levels of inhibition. It makes people far more emotional. It makes them far more impulsive. And unfortunately, that's where we tend to meet people when it reveals perhaps more difficult underlying emotions, which become less inhibited and they then start acting impulsively. And this can lead to very difficult um, situations with self-harm and um, suicide attempts and that kind of thing. So it can be a very difficult situation, but it's amazing if you can get them to get on board with you at that stage and stop the alcohol and you meet them again in two, four, six weeks time remove the alcohol from the situation and you have a very different clinical picture. So that's not to say that it's anybody who drinks like that isn't necessarily depressed or has a comorbid mental health difficulty. But when you take the alcohol out of the equation, what we know is to look at some figures from research and um, the big study back in 2015, we know that up to 40% of people who drink heavily will have symptoms that mimic a major depressive episode. But if those people stop drinking, that will reduce back down to just above baseline levels of about 5%. Um, and we know that the prevalence of depression is around that 4.5% higher in women, lower in men. But if you combine everything, it's about sort of 4, 4.5%. So when you take the alcohol out of the equation, it's only then that you can see the real picture. And a big part of the work that I would be doing clinically in community clinics and, and meeting people is trying to help them to understand that if they tend to come into you and say, the drink isn't the problem. I'm drinking because I'm depressed. And I'm there saying, well, I think it's actually possible that you're depressed because you're drinking. And you've got this chicken and egg situation. And I think, as Fiona said, if you could have some objective, able to touch, to understand, to recognize and demonstrate this, this is hard evidence. This is not just my opinion. Now, of course, that all feeds into behavior change and all the rest of it. And you can have all the evidence you want. If somebody isn't ready to change, you're going to go around on that merry-go-round for a while. And we know this, but at least you could have that sort of, um, as that objective sense of here's what we know. It, 
these are the facts and you know when you're ready to come and work with me on this I'm here and I'm ready for it you know to make a change so so yeah I mean depression would be the main one anxiety being obviously a close second to that and then if you think about you know if we were to consider the question of how does alcohol affect maybe perhaps more major mental health diagnosis such as bipolar affective disorder schizophrenia those kind of more chronic perhaps more debilitating mental illnesses Certainly, you know, the incidence of chromover diagnosis, so a diagnosis of schizophrenia and problem alcohol use will be very common. And there are various uh, studies showing that the, the levels of harmful alcohol use and comorbid substance abuse in patients with schizophrenia, for example, they're three times more likely to have problem alcohol use than somebody without a major mental health diagnosis. So it's, it, it affects, I would say, all areas of our work. And it's something that if you don't address makes managing the underlying illness much more difficult for lots of reasons, as I mentioned, impulsivity, but also adherence to a treatment plan, buy-in, that therapeutic alliance with somebody. If you feel like you're constantly up against this other factor, which perhaps people aren't being honest about or don't recognise as being an issue, it can be a problem and you can have this feeling that there's a missing piece. So it, it's definitely something that, that raises its head time and again in clinical work. I have to say, we talk about the different effects of alcohol and all different, you know, things around it often. And it always surprises me, you know, when we hear these effects, it kind of comes back to something that is socially extremely normalized and very common. Every time blows me away, really, how significant the effects can be. And so, yeah, that's a really great overview of the impact that it can have on mental health. Are there any other health-related concerns that you would sort of link to this or that you've become aware of? Absolutely. So I suppose both as working as a, as a psychiatrist, but also from my previous work, um, at working as a GP or a general practitioner, the liver, I suppose, and the brain are the two most obvious ones. Um, so we've, we've talked a bit about its brain effects. And certainly in terms of the liver, you have you know, this myriad of, of effects ranging from um, mild reversible fatty liver disease right up to end stage cirrhosis so it it, it affects everything and, and I suppose I was thinking about that in terms of thinking about that question how does it affect the body it affects everything and you can go down through as I said you can really just take a picture of the body and work down through each system because it comes up everywhere obviously I mean similar to what Fiona was saying when we're, we're talking about memory it's not just one area it's the networking into every area and, and alcohol is the same so as I said the, the brain the liver will be the most obvious ones but also pancreas obviously the stomach GI effects poor absorption which leads on to further consequences in terms of brain illness you know we, depending on, on on how long we've got you know you can have lots of interesting discussions about Wernicke's and and Korsakoff psychosis which are all sequential to problem alcohol use but it, the problem is not just the alcohol but the fact that the person then starts as, as Fiona was saying that salience that primacy of alcohol so they're not eating well they're not nourishing their body they have a, a deficit then in your thiamine your vitamin d1 which goes on then to have further consequences so it, it, it affects everything um and in terms of working as a gp and having spent time working in, in a busy a e in dublin as well you know you would need people coming in with you know massive very difficult gi bleeds all sequential to liver disease with secondary portal hypertension resulting in esophageal varices resulting in uh, you know catastrophic bleeds so alcohol kills 
And it's one of, you know, when you look at kind of the overall factors in terms of causes of mortality and morbidity, sometimes we think that it's, it's it, you know, we have to find, well, it's the cardiac effect or the, you know, the brain hemorrhage secondary to the hypertension. But it's also the guy who jumped off a wall because he was absolutely in, intoxicated. It's the guy who maybe punches through a, a sheet of, of glass over 50% of the presentations to ED with say tendon injuries and hand injuries were directly related to acute intoxication. And then you had the indirect relationship. So again, working as a, as a plastics intern, you'd be thinking, what has that got to do with mental health? But we had people who were coming in after self-harming who may have cut across tendons and you'd have people who would be, they were feeling badly, but they probably wouldn't have gone ahead with the act if they hadn't that reduced inhibition as a result of acute intoxication with alcohol or other substances. So to say it, it literally affects every part of the body and also affects any attempt to ameliorate or to treat illness in other areas if you don't deal with the alcohol first. When you were talking about that personal impact of alcohol use, there's something that always jumps into my mind. We were funded to make a short film and part of that we had a lot of um, meetings between participants in our study. Um, and I always remember one, one of the participants talking about how they chose not to drink alcohol um, most of the time because they found that it really impacted on their medications what how well the medication was working for them and then when they weren't drinking alcohol or they chose not go to to not go to the pub they found that their social life was completely inhibited because we've got such a culture of alcohol use in Ireland that it just pervades everything and I have found, because sometimes I'll like, I mean, obviously when I was pregnant, I didn't drink. And then sometimes I decided not to drink for a year to see if my academic uh, performance would improve. And, and when I would tell people like, oh no, I'm not drinking, it's fine. They'd be really like, oh, you're not drinking? That's kind of weird. And this, this woman in part of the study found that her social contacts were massively reduced when she chose not to drink and when she told people she wasn't drinking and the majority of those people didn't know that she had a mental health diagnosis because she kept that very private and personal and then that the fact that she felt so isolated really impacted on her symptoms then so there's all these like kind of secondary and tertiary impacts of your choice around alcohol that i think are so like aside from the physical health, they're so misunderstood and our culture around alcohol is just so toxic, especially if you choose to disclose that you're not drinking. People just don't understand it here. Yeah, and I'd say there's a lot of similarities in Australia with that culture. So it's something that we discuss a lot in our work is the stigma around drug use. But probably we should be having more conversations about the stigma for not using drugs or alcohol as well and how we navigate that. Because a lot of what we do has been around viral hepatitis. And so that linkage between the liver and mental clarity and, and somebody's ability to think clearly is something that we've we've heard a lot anecdotally from people when they've had their hepatitis C cured, for example, that 
They felt like a, a foggy curtain has been moved from their minds. So the research that you've been doing, Fiona, and also just from the, the body of knowledge that you have, Ema, what, what kind of changes would you like to see in clinical practice that would reflect some of these insights? So I suppose, as I was saying earlier, in terms of what changes would you like to see in terms of alcohol and how it affects our, our clinical work, I think it, at a, a nationwide level, that appreciation that you've, you've spoken about already of recognising that alcohol is a drug and and recognizing it as such and that it's not it's not dismissed as oh well I only have one or two drinks and helping I suppose at a clinical level each person recognizing what are the contributing factors to them so certainly I would feel that if there was a greater acknowledgement of it you know in the same way that we see cannabis that, that that this has major mental health effects obviously and that you're going to need to talk about it and this is a problem but people don't see alcohol in that way and I definitely feel if we had more objective evidence demonstrating this that it, it would stop feeling like you have to sort of have an argument with somebody or prove it to them or whereas you know when we're talking about even side effects, for example, when I'm going to start a medication clinically, you have to sit with the person, you have to help them to understand, A, what are the benefits, what are, what are the side effects, what can they expect, help them to make an informed decision around their medication choice. You'd love to see a similar thing around, at least if somebody is choosing to drink, well, let it be an informed decision and that, that there's a, a greater population-wide awareness of if this is in the picture then everything else has to change slightly you have a choice you can take it out of the picture and then I can tell you much more based on evidence what your medication is going to do but if you're coming into me saying you're still struggling with severe depression and you're also telling me that you're still drinking you know whether it's just two glasses of wine three or four nights a week well it, it's a bit of a nonsense prescribing further antidepressants when you are still pouring a depressant into the system. People don't necessarily react very well to that and can feel you're being unreasonable. And then, as I said, that impacts on the therapeutic rapport and the therapeutic alliance, which I feel is as important sometimes as, as, as other aspects of the consultation. So I would love to see from the work that Fiona and Dara and colleagues are doing an ability to have that, as Fiona says, to sit down with somebody at the beginning of their mental health journey, recognise the contributing factors and make a plan um, and at least be aware and acknowledge that there is objective evidence that this is causing a problem. And then they can make their own informed choice as to what they do and, and how they go about things. What I find very frustrating as, um, as a re researcher is that there's so little information about binge alcohol use in adult populations. And I was just actually trying to find some, some stats for Australia, but they're quite hard to find. But in 2017, in Ireland, 79% of the population sampled drank alcohol and 37% of those drinkers reported binge alcohol use. So that, that was from a population of people over the age of 18 and men between 18 and 34, I think it was, had higher rates of binge alcohol use than other age ranges and women. But if you were trying to find information on binge use, it'll be in adolescence and then in say, what research might turn emerging adulthood. So up until the age of 25. 
But if you're thinking about 37% of the people sampled in this, there were, it was a huge group of people in this study. That's a massive amount of people that are binge drinking. And we don't have accurate understanding about the brain impacts of that alcohol use. From the work I do, I know that increasing alcohol use will be associated with how subnetworks in the brain are differently connected. From other work that I've done, I know that increasing alcohol use is associated with further thinning of different cortical areas. So it's not that it's like a yes or no to alcohol use. There is a dose dependent effect on that thinning in cortical areas and how those subnetworks are, are connected. So I would like to see more information and more research into binge alcohol use um, for adult populations. And then I think that would be really important to translate that into public health policy, um, along with the other information that we're finding, because there's really only a handful of well-constructed scientific studies into the brain effects of alcohol use. And like Imre was saying, a lot of the research is um, focused on people who are dependent on alcohol use. And obviously there's a huge impact and that research is needed and it doesn't have to be this side or this side kind of thing, like everybody deserves to have research undertaken. But in terms of that 74 to 79% of people who were drinking alcohol, only about 6.7% of those people were considered addicted. So it's a small but significant group of people who are addicted, but there's such a large group of people who could be drinking harmfully that we don't know enough about. So I would like to, to conduct more research and then to bring that into the public policy arena so that we can construct more guidelines or better guidelines, I suppose, around what this alcohol use is potentially doing to your brain. Safer drinking guideline isn't a challenge. You can drink below it. It's not like what you have to hit every week. You can drink that in one day, in one sitting, and that is potentially worse for your brain than spreading it out over the week. So I'd, I think I would like just a little bit more clarity in terms of policy and health policy. But again, it requires funding. But I think there has been a lot of work or a lot of studies recently finding that we're drinking more during lockdowns. So I think we have a potential at the moment to maybe access more funding in terms of alcohol use. That would be really nice. And to just look at where our brain health is going and think about what we're doing in lockdown. I think it's it's about trying to support people to have an informed conversation around it um, as opposed to you must not, you should not. You can choose to do what you, you would choose to do, but here's what we know. And I think a, a bit more clarity around that. But there's also, I mean, we, we were talking earlier about, you know, the, the physical effects and, and the consequences. And we mentioned mental health diagnoses. We mentioned injuries, traumatic brain injuries, maybe impulsive self-harm and all of the other sort of um, sequential effects on the liver, on the kidneys, et cetera. But there's huge evidence showing significant associations and causality between alcohol and cancers and not necessarily at harmful drinking levels. So, I mean, one of the major risk factors for breast cancer is alcohol. And if you were to be having a glass of wine three or four nights a week, 
that's and you were doing that consistently that's a consistent risk factor that you could very easily modify that we don't seem to talk all that much about so I think again I would just like to see clarity in terms of rather than then Fiona says uh, presenting it as here's your target recognizing that okay well if you're above this we've definitely got a, a conversation that we need to have but even around that prescribing lifestyle measures so the you know if there's difficulties with obesity with cholesterol with blood pressure that you always try to start with the lifestyle intervention and it's the same I, I think we should be having the same conversation but I I do think it all comes back to how do we view it and our sort of cultural relationships be they in Australia or in Ireland with alcohol and it being just accepted as this is one of the things we do. Maybe we need to question that and maybe we need to have a look at our thinking around that. Thanks for listening to another episode of Liver Talk. As always, you can find information in the show notes. And if you are concerned about you or someone you love's drinking, you can call direct line on 1800 266. If you're concerned about liver health or viral hepatitis, you can call the Liver Line on 1800 703 003 Monday to Friday from 9 to 5 p.m. Thanks for listening.